0: Shalom, and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Dan Seligson, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ashley Jacobs. What's up, Ashley?
1: Hey, Dan. I am so excited to host this episode to feature Jewish Disability Awareness, Acceptance, and Inclusion Month. Observed every February, this special month serves as a unified effort among Jewish organizations worldwide to raise awareness and foster inclusion for people with disabilities and those who love them. We were honored to interview Judy Human, a pioneer of disability rights. Judy, along with her allies, founded a movement to fight the injustice of discrimination against people with disabilities that has literally changed this country and the world.
0: Paralyzed at 18 months from polio, Judy grew up feeling included by friends and family, not thinking that she was different from anyone else. When her mom took her to enroll in elementary school, however, administrators told her she wasn't allowed because her wheelchair was a fire hazard. That was the beginning of her fight against systematic discrimination, even dehumanization of people with disabilities. Through lawsuits, sit-ins, protests, confronting people in power, and even blocking rush hour traffic in Manhattan, she relentlessly advocated for the right of all people with disabilities to gain equal access to public life.
1: Using her connections with others who shared similar stories and experiences based on physical and or intellectual disabilities, Judy's leadership led to a powerful movement that echoed those of other civil rights groups. And through their efforts, they achieved historic change, including the adoption of Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, which prohibited discrimination against people with disabilities in programs that receive federal aid. And eventually that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 Protecting people with disabilities from discrimination in all areas of life.
0: Nearly one in four Americans experiences some form of disability and a far greater percentage will have a disability in their lifetime. Because of the work Judy and others who pioneered the disability rights movement, people with physical and intellectual differences as well as mental illness are given the accommodations that they need to work, travel and live not only to live independently, but to have control over their lives and their futures. Within the past year, Judy released her book, Being Human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights advocate, and is the subject of the documentary Crip Camp, a disability revolution now streaming on Netflix. And she is the only guest on the Vibe of the Tribe to have had an entire episode of Comedy Central's drunk history centered around her story. Judy continues to fight for equity for people with disabilities. Her leadership and bravery have made it easier for people to advocate for themselves in situations where it otherwise would have been difficult, if not impossible, including Ashley and me. Well, Judy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe. We are thrilled to have you.
2: I'm very happy to be here. Sorry, we're not together, but this is second best.
0: This is second best. We can see you, we can talk to you, and people will be able to hear you, which is great. Uh, I want to start by asking you about some of the experiences that you and your family were dealing with during your childhood and how that formed the foundation of your lifelong work advocating for disability rights.
2: So, my parents came over to the United States from Germany when my mom was 12 and my dad was 14. And I think that really, in part, uh, set, you know, they, they were resilient people. They both have passed. My dad was in the Marines and he was in an elite group of the Marines. And my mom was working and she had been sent to live with, a distant relative who she didn't know and thought that she would see her parents again, which of course did not happen. And she was an only child and her father was an only child. And her mother had a sister, but died also in the concentration camp. So my mother, you know, had distant relatives that we still, you know, talked to and in some way, actually more during COVID. But she basically moved through the world, you know, making friends. And when I had, they got married in 1946 and I was born in December of 47. I'm the first of three. And my dad was a butcher. He eventually opened up a store with his brother. Everyone on my father's side of the family was in the meat business. And so they were moving forward, creating a family like many German Jewish and other Jews from around the world that were basically starting up and over again. And then when I had polio, of course they really didn't know anyone else except Franklin Roosevelt who had had polio and uh, they were not at all prepared for the discrimination and barriers that I would be facing and they would be facing. And so I think that really their background as refugees who really were determined to continue to move forward is something that definitely impacted their ability to really deal with things as they were happening, even though they were unexpected and other people were not, you know, other friends of theirs on our block and other relatives, nobody was having the same experiences.
1: That part of your book was really incredible for me. We're talking about how you didn't realize um, that the world saw you differently because you felt so included from the get-go. And this year was really big for you, right? You released your book, the Netflix documentary Crip Camp came out, and both of them are really bringing the disability rights and independent living movements to the mainstream if you will. So what's that like sharing your story with such a large audience? What
2: has that response been? So I think both the book and certainly the film have been uh, getting a lot of exposure. And Crip Camp was one of the featured people in it. It was directed by Nicole Newnham and uh, Jim Lebreck, And uh, Netflix is the producer. So they have been doing a yeoman's job on getting the film out. And I've done public speaking for decades. And it has, however, opened up a much larger universe. And one of the pluses, I don't wanna say it that way, but COVID really um, has stopped all of our travel. And so I had um, a lot of speaking engagements book before the tragedy hit. And I have to say that I've been able to do many more presentations because things are now virtual. On the other hand, I don't really get to meet people. I love being able really to talk to people and listen to them and be able to be more individual with answering people's questions. So I would say for many of us, social media has become more important people networking with other people. And on the other hand, I'm very much looking forward to really being able to honestly go to synagogue and do other things. I go to a synagogue here called Addis Israel. I frequently do, you know, services online, but it's, you know, it's just not the same and being able to talk to people. So it's been a good year. I'm very blessed in many ways that I've been able to do as much as I have been, but I think, like for many of us, being able to really be with other people is something we're looking forward to.
0: Well, I can tell you're an extrovert because before we actually started recording, you are one of the first guests who, before we started, needed to know about uh, Ashley and me. And um, of course, most people don't. I mean, you might think that's normal. That's normal for you, but you, I, I can tell you, you are a people person that that exudes from this small box. Of- that I'm looking at right now.
2: Yeah, I'm an extrovert off the chart. I,
0: I just wanted to you know, give a little bit of my personal story. You asked about it, and I just want to talk a little bit about how your work has connected to my life. When I look back at my college and on, because this is about the time ADA passed, uh, as someone who lost most of my hearing at a young age, as a teenager, I liked to go to rock concerts, but they didn't like me back. I've been wearing hearing aids since I was, I think, 27, 28 and uh, my natural hearing continues to plummet. Luckily, hearing aid technology continues to improve, so we work it out together. (laughs) And I am a a direct beneficiary of ADA. My employer, when they redid our our office, set it up so that I would not have anyone behind me because one of my worst things is like people coming up behind me because I don't hear them and talking to me and me saying the wrong answer because I'm not prepared with my hearing aids, in which I hate wearing, except when I'm around people so i i think you're and we're going to talk about this but i think what you did was something that i was lucky enough to take for granted honestly what you and and the people who you worked with what you did was um it was profound in my own life i feel like i always took for granted the accommodations that were made for me and i watched the film and i learned a lot more about what you and the people who you worked with accomplished and and i just i can't take those things for granted anymore. It was really because of your fight for 504, which then evolved into ADA, that, that people like me and millions and millions of other people in this country, past and present, and in the future, are able to advocate for ourselves. And this is something that I just take for granted, that I can, I can go into HR and I can advocate for myself. I can say, I need these fancy noise-canceling headphones because otherwise I can't be in meetings. They say, here's 250 bucks, go for it. So I I just, you know, I just want to throw out there that I am, I'm really honored to speak with you because you are a really important person in my life. And that's what I learned this week. You and and the people around you were just really important in my life. And I thank you for that.
2: Thank you very much for that. I, I think one of the very important issues, the evolution of our movement is that, you know, many disabled individuals like yourselves, both you and Ashley, after the ADA was passed, began to recognize that there were laws in place, but you needed to understand what they were and you needed to make sure other people understood what they were and that even the most effective implementation of 504 and the ADA and laws like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act still are not the end of where we need to go. So I I believe that even doing this program today is in part recognizing that within the Jewish community and more broadly in the United States, we have like 61 million disabled people, internationally at least 1 billion disabled people. And it's all about um, self-respect, self-esteem, believing that we have a right not only to have laws that are in place implemented, but we have a right and a responsibility to also look at advocating for new laws and new regulations. And I think another very important part of the work that has been going on, I think really since the 60s, is the alignment of the civil rights movements and getting disability to really be seen within other communities as essential. Since like with this program, I'm Jewish, I'm a woman, I have a disability. There are black disabled people with different types of disabilities, Asians, Latinos, indigenous populations, on and on. And ultimately as a Jew with a disability, really being able to have discussions about how I have felt included or excluded not just me, but others, and really grappling with these kinds of discussions in a community that, on the one hand, in my family, being Jewish was obviously a very significant issue. But as I was growing up, many different experiences which we can discuss, which enabled me to see in a painful way as I was getting older, that being Jewish was not enough that my disability in many ways trumped my being jewish and so you know you came through the doors as a jew but you got put off on the side consciously or unconsciously because in my case i use a wheelchair or you're deaf or hard of hearing or blind or have a depression or intellectual disability whatever it may be and i think you know a lot of this is being discussed more over the last number of years But I I actually really believe we need to be doing much more in-depth work to really include when we look at racism and sexism and homophobia, we need to be looking at ableism as a part of that. And we need to be looking at disability beyond an accommodation. Obviously, for all of us, accommodations allow us to enter the door, right? If the synagogue has no ramp, I don't get in. You have your own different accommodations that you need. So those are essential. But for me, it's when I am through the door, how am I greeted? Am I greeted in a way that I have to be proving myself for many different years, that I can do things that others can do? Or when I come into the room, are people recognizing that, oh, I have a disability, I'm there, Certainly, for certain things, likely because I'm Jewish. I share certain interests and values in areas like social justice.
0: It's interesting that you talk about the connection to other civil rights movements, because from watching the documentary, and I know this was just a snapshot of what was happening, but this is where I I learned a lot of the context for today's conversation. It seems so often like, at the beginning anyway, this was a lonely battle. At the camp, one one camper mentioned that her parents seemed more concerned with protecting her than enriching her life or expanding her opportunities. There was minimal news coverage of the building takeover in San Francisco, that one Channel 7 reporter. And it didn't seem like, at least from the film, that there were that many allies, one notable exception being the Black Panthers, who I think were very early on saw that intersection between racial equality and rights for people with disabilities. I'm curious how you and the people you worked with worked to build support from outside of your own community so that you could have momentum to make change.
2: So one of the reasons the Black Panthers got involved was because one of their founders in Oakland had multiple sclerosis. And that's an important uh, piece of information because he was also involved with the demonstrations. So he was the one that got them in. I have no idea whether they would have gotten involved had Brad not been the connector because I don't know that any of the people in the group would have thought to reach out to them. But I think Brad is a was a complete example of when you are part of a group and you are accepted within the group, then the group is looking to support you. And in this case, Brad's disability was something that did not deter him from being an activist, both within the movement and including disability. And he had a person who was also a member of the party who worked with him all the time because he had a speech disability and physical disabilities. The other, I mean, I think it's fair to say that many disabled people today are still lonely. And lonely in as much as, people are still hiding their disabilities, people of invisible disabilities frequently are afraid to discuss them, they're afraid of stigma, they're afraid of what will happen to them within their family, from their friends. These are issues that I think are critical that we're needing to pay attention to. So at that period of time, I was born as I said in 47, It was at the end of the Second World War. And what we saw going on then were organizations that were being supported by the Congress, groups like Paralyzed Veterans of America, Disabled American Vets, and others. And in New York City, which is where I was growing up in Brooklyn, there was a group called the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association. And Eastern EPVA, as it was known, It's now morphed into another organization. But EPVA for me actually was a great model because when I learned about them and I don't remember how I learned about them, they were doing some very important advocacy at the city level, New York City, and at the state level. And one of the areas they were working on was accessibility, standards, et cetera. The people that I knew from EPVA were men, they all had disabilities. That was very important. There were disabled people who were taking a problem and pushing forth solutions. And that to me, you know, you see it in the book and you see it in Crip Camp. It's taking a problem and many times really learning that other people have similar problems and that you can try individually to resolve the problem. But in many ways, doing it together, A, allows you not to feel isolated and alone. And B, gives you, or me for sure, like a moral strength. Uh, If you see the film, uh, there's a scene in there wearing a red dress. And I'm, this is after, the 504 demonstrations and I don't even remember where I was, but I was at some event and I'm known. My parents used to call me my uncle, Sarah Bernhardt, because I, I have no idea, but I get emotional. You'll see many times in Crip Camp where I'm like almost crying, but I don't. And this was a um, perfect scene where I was talking about basically how can I consider myself equal when I still have to be thankful for wheelchair accessible bathrooms. And I raise it because if you notice, there were a number of people around me and they were emotionally being supportive of me. So that frequently enables me to say things that I might have said anyway, but kind of gives me that emotional support. So that's really what was happening since the 40s, 50s. Obviously, for me, the 60s on forward. And I think that's what happens with many people. Now, how are we building alliances? Which I think, Deanna, is also part of your question. Me and a number of my other friends really always believed that you wanted to bring as many people together as possible. That included disabled people with different types of disabilities. So I may need something which is physically accessible. You may need something because of your hearing, your hard of hearing. But it's important for me to support you. And it's important for you to support me. It's important for us to understand how do we, what are things that we may need. If you have depression or a learning disability, what an intellectual disability, we need to be, closely aligning ourselves with our movement, learning about who we are, what we need, so that we can call on each other at the drop of a pin. But also because in our country and others, disabled people are not necessarily identifying and they're everywhere. So we really need to get all of these other organizations that make up the breath of the United States or whatever country you're in, we need them to stop feeling that disability is a tragedy. Because I think, you know, when a non-disabled person feels that disability is a tragedy and then they acquire it temporarily or permanently, I think it's very disempowering. So if people understand what it is the three of us are talking about, It also then allows them, I think, within their own organizations to be able to really encourage people to be themselves and disability be a part of it and address it. And you see in the work that we were doing in the 70s and 504 demonstrations as an example, at that point I was living in Berkeley with the Center for, I was working with the Center for Independent Living I need to emphasize, a non-residential organization. It, It was and is an advocacy group in Boston. You've got the Boston Center for Independent Living and a number of centers around the state of Massachusetts. And Massachusetts was really a leader in the creation of the independent living movement. People like the late Fred Fay and people that are alive today still working on that movement. All of that, has been important and enabled us to reach out to many other groups to get them more involved. And you'll see in the film, it's very clear. We had a a telegram from Cesar Chavez. We had uh, Eleanor Schmiel from National Organization on Women. We had leaders from the religious communities and others, as well as from the disability community.
1: I love all that. And the timing of this interview is so perfect. We are interviewing you ahead of Jewish Disability Awareness, Acceptance and Inclusion Month. You've spoken so lovingly of the synagogue that you can't wait to get back to So where are there still barriers within the Jewish community? and, And what can we do both from like a personal and physical perspective to
2: be more inclusive? Many synagogues now, has social justice groups. And those social justice groups, in part, are looking at issues around food, deprivation, voting, violence, guns, whatever it may be. And at Addis now, we will be doing an event uh, in the next couple of months where I and another woman who's a rabbi, disabled, blind rabbi, will be participating in a social justice discussion. Because what we're looking at doing is allowing people who are very active in the social justice community to understand, for example, that issues of police violence need to be addressed, looking at the fact that 40 to 50% of those people who have died um, have had disabilities, psychosocial disabilities or other types of disabilities where they couldn't respond the way they were theoretically supposed to respond. And so understanding that disability, unfortunately, frequently, like when we look at sexual assault, violence against girls and women, the statistics for disabled individuals is very high. And so we want people to be putting a disability lens on their work. So it means that our synagogues need to continue to address physical access, but we need to really be going beyond. Do we have a ramp? Do we have the audio looping? Do we have large print? All of those things, all of which are important, but we really need to be looking at what are our own biases? What are we reading? What films are we looking at? How are we having these discussions? And it's anti-Semitism, right? It doesn't go away overnight. But we have to really be looking at it, both within our community and expressing it beyond and getting leaders in other movements to understand it and look at what they need to be doing. So I'm going to give you one example. I've got bunches, but in the 1980s, when I was living in Berkeley, the Jewish Weekly had a dating service. And I looked at filling out the form because it had two questions. One, do you have a disability? Yes or no? I obviously filled out yes. And then the other question It was, would you uh, consider dating someone with a disability? Now, I liked that question. I maybe would reframe it today, but I liked it because it acknowledged that you might have a disability. And I think it also was saying, we need to pull that out. Cause it didn't say, are you uh, a religious practicing Jew? Are you Sephardic or Ashkenazi? I don't believe those kinds of questions were there. They asked about your likes and things of that nature. So I wrote down, yes, I would consider dating someone with a disability. I sent in my $36. You were supposed to get a response in a short period of time. It was in June. And it happened to me that that summer I went to Israel for the first time. And when I came back, I realized one day, you know, I never heard back. And they were supposed to send you however many names. I had friends over at the house and I couldn't reach the mailbox. And I just said, you know, could you bring me in the mail, please? And there was an envelope. And I opened up the envelope. And the check fell out. The check fell out and the letter said, basically, sorry, we didn't have anyone in our pool that met, you know, your areas of interest. And if we find anybody, we'll let you know. So what it really was saying is, by my checking off the box that said I had a disability, it meant that anybody who, didn't answer affirmatively that they would consider dating someone with a disability, ruled you out. I thought for me, that was a very, and still today, is a very powerful statement. One that we need to continue to talk about and work on. It's got to go beyond talk. It's got to go for
0: action. You've been talking about Jewish identity quite a bit from your family's history to your activism in your synagogue. And I think that's wonderful. I'm wondering how your Jewish values have informed your work and your Jewish identity has informed your work.
2: I mean, I would say it's significantly informed my work because it just is a part of who I am. And so I think wanting to look at beyond myself, even beyond disability, looking at the broader discussions around justice and justice for all and really committing to be engaged myself and to try to engage others and dialogue. I mean, I think dialogue is always so important. It's not just something that Jews do, but My dad uh, was, when we would have dinner, we always had active discussions. And I learned over the years that our dining room table was not typical to many other people's dining room tables because our discussion went way beyond, so how was your day? But there were always topics that were brought up and heated dialogue was something that we didn't shy away from. But you know, I'd have friends who would come over and say, oh my God, you didn't tell me about this. I wish I would have known. And it was done, I think, in a way that really forced us to start debating. And we had a position, you had to defend that position. And if you couldn't defend it, you could be sent off to the encyclopedia, which they had proudly bought book after book. And when my cousin got engaged, he had uh, told his fiance, when you go to my uncle's house, if only speak, if you like understand and know what you're gonna be talking about, because if it's something that you can't defend, he'll send you to the encyclopedia to write <laughs> something about it. So, I mean, I think healing the world, looking at beyond our block, our community, It's one of the reasons why international work has been so important to me.
0: It's an understatement to say that we are in a time of great change. The last administration changed us, revealed some things about this country. The new administration will change us again. The pandemic has absolutely altered life as we know it. But I also think that there are some takeaways from the pandemic in the way that we work or learn, travel or not, socialize and other facets of our life that we may end up taking with us. And I'm wondering from the perspective of a an advocate for people with disabilities, are there learnings from this time that we can carry forward that will actually be of benefit despite the fact that we can all acknowledge the last year has been rather crappy.
2: I think one of the first takeaways was how states were looking at rationing healthcare and how disabled people were on the losing side. And had it not been for strong advocacy groups, including organizations that have been supported for many decades with government money, like our protection and advocacy organizations, of which you've got a great one in Massachusetts, that the regulations that were coming out from states would probably have prevailed in at least some of the states and that our ability, because we're now more, we're a stronger national movement and states are stronger, really allowed us to quickly jump in and speak up and out about rationing of healthcare. Based on disability. That I think was very important. So for me, that is a lesson learned that people, many people still view the lives of disabled people as being less valued and believe that our contributions are not as significant as a typical other person. That to me is the first. The second is when you look at the percentage of Disabled people dying in nursing homes and in congregate living settings. We talk about nursing homes kind of abstractly, you know, they're for older people, but nobody is in a nursing home if they don't have a disability, whatever that disability might be. Otherwise, why would you be going there? And you're going there because we do not have sufficient home and community based services. Now, Massachusetts is really a leader in the United States and has been for decades on home and community-based services and also the ability for people to work and uh, be able to earn money and not be penalized for working. But in saying that, Massachusetts as a leader still has many of the same problems that exist in every country. I'm sorry, in every state and every country. But we need to be recognizing that COVID will eventually be gone. Maybe something else will come in. But the bottom line is we know that people living in segregated, confined environments are not only at greater risk of getting sick and dying, but the people that are working with us are likewise at greater risk of getting sick and dying. So, As a community, and now I'm not talking about disabled people, as a society, we need to really recognize that the people living in those nursing homes, beyond being your mother, your father, whoever, that many of those people would be living in their own homes if places could be made accessible, if people could get the support they need in their own home and that you didn't have to be rich to be able to do that. But even rich people go into these places. So I, I feel those for me are the societal issues that we have got to be looking at. What are we doing? I mean, My concern, honestly, is it's yes, 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 it's a bad problem. But then when you look at what's going to go on at the state and local levels, where is the money going to be coming from to ensure that Medicaid, whatever it's called in your particular state, that those benefit programs will enable people to live in their home. And the nursing home industry is a very powerful industry. And that nursing home industry needs to continue to be battled so that people get services in their home. To me, That's the biggest issue. I know that you were going beyond that and you were talking about things like people being able to work at home and not have to go to work every day. I think all those things are relevant issues to discuss. But for me, the reason why I talk about nursing homes, segregated living environments for people with mental health or developmental disabilities, and everything surrounding that is the biggest issue is because people are going to forget it. People are not going to be fighting at the, and now I'm not talking about disabled people, because we are fighting for this all the time. But, you know, let's just talk about Jews. So where is the Jewish community and the lobbying community really forcing discussions at the federal and state level, which really address these issues in a meaningful way? Because otherwise, we're not going to advance. And you can see that people are still being admitted into these programs right? Because they don't have services at home and they can't, it's like for me, I can't live here if I don't have personal assistance. And so I would be at risk, but, you know, thank goodness we have enough savings that I'm, me, my husband and I are able to afford the services that we need, but that's not true of many people.
1: And that's awful. People who have disabilities don't know that these accommodations exist too, right? So like you were speaking earlier about people don't know how to ask for what they need or they're ashamed or they assume that they're a burden or they don't want to feel like one. There's a fear of outing something so personal that you'll face retaliation or judgment. You feel defeated by previous mistreatment. I mean, I, I know all of that was true
2: for me. And thanks to your work, I'm strong. Like, I want to just say thanks to yourself. Maybe you you read and learned about what others were doing, but at the end of the day, you need to own what you have done for yourself.
1: Thank you, yes. I'm really proud of that, honestly. And based on the legislation that I knew existed, I was able to say to a former employer that, like I literally said to them, I feel discriminated against for the sake of the needs of the business, because that was their company line. I was able to find that within myself. I have very supportive parents who uh, stuck with me through that. And Dan and I have said, like we benefit from reasonable accommodations. But what advice do you have for people who have trouble advocating for themselves and or their
2: families? So advocacy for me is something that's a learned skill.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And as such, you know, really, when when you look at the Jewish community, right, we come together, we do advocate for issues, right? We're advocating on Israeli issues. We're advocating on food, you know, s- security. We're advocating on issues around immigration. So we are used to advocating and taking positions that frequently others don't agree with. I feel like What goes on, not just in disability, but we're discussing disability now, there needs to be a way of people being mentored. And mentoring is a big issue, you know, in the Jewish community too, right? We like to mentor younger people and be supportive, help you get a good education, get a job, blah, blah, blah. We also need, I think, very much to be looking at, okay, who are we? Do I have a disability? Have I been able to do something? And did I have similar experiences to Ashley, for example? And how can I let it be known to Ashley and the Ashleys where you live that if you've got questions, if you want to talk about whatever, I'm here. And also, as I was saying, with the social justice work and other things, If people see that disability is a normal part of the work that's being done, then normal discussions happen. And those normal discussions are, you know, I had to go speak at the city council on blah, blah, blah. And I was really afraid of doing that, but so-and-so was really helpful. They helped me write my speech. We practiced, we did whatever, or something that's even, you know, less public. And I think it's, It's being able to speak up and recognize that this discussion today around disability is one that's hard for many of us to have. And we also feel like being critical of what other people may be saying. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I know that there are things that have gone on at my synagogue where I've said things, I've gotten stronger about saying things. When I first got there, it was I just decided I'm coming here because I want to dive in. I am not going to spend every minute of my being here dealing with advocacy issues. I'm not going to put them to the side. But for the next two hours, I am here for this. Then somebody would be giving a drash, or a kid would be doing a bar mitzvah bat mitzvah presentation, and there would be something in there around disability in a way that was hurtful to me, not intentionally. And trying to figure out, how do I say something, which is not seen as, oh, you're always negative, because that's not my intent. But how do I kind of massage it? And, you know, we've all got, not all, but we have examples of these things that we can talk about. Not feeling alone, I think is very important. Feeling welcome, not just because of our disability, but because of the totality of who we are, I think is important. And disability is, depending on the time in our life, a bigger or smaller part of who we are. Exactly.
1: You touched on this in your book, you know, and you also said that disability to some people means fear. This is rooted in ignorance, a lack of understanding, and coming together as a group. There was a line in the documentary with Larry Allison that director of Camp Jenna that resonated with both Dan and myself. And it was, quote, the problem wasn't for people with disabilities. It was for people without disabilities. It was our problem. So it was important for us to change.
2: Let me just say something about that. I I agree, obviously, but I want to say that within the disability community, we also have similar biases. You know, we have biases against people who may be acting differently than we do, and we may think whatever, and also lack of exposure. When I was growing up, we really didn't meet a lot of people who had various forms of disabilities. And so the absence in media, the biases that people have, I had to consciously really uh, think about. What was I doing that was not positively impacting people who had different kinds of disabilities or from different backgrounds? That's, you know, one of the things that people have talked about with the film and the book is this consistent collaboration and respect. Taking the time to listen to other people who weren't necessarily speaking typically. That scene in Crip Camp where... Nancy Rosenblum is saying to me, you're always talking. And people were laughing. Nancy and I were friends. We went to elementary school together. And I thought that was hysterical. It was really good because we had a really nice friendship. Keep pushing yourself forward. Look at ways that you can identify what your biases are. And then look at ways of how you can change my bias, your biases, others' biases.
1: That documentary Crip Camp just really was so powerful. It really hit me in the heart. The ADA was the reason why I minored in law in college. I think I mentioned that earlier. And you had said the scene earlier about after section 504 passed how you're tired of being thankful for accessible toilets and you said when am i ever going to be equal in the community and i want to zoom out a little bit because you didn't stop at section 504 you didn't stop at the ADA you didn't even stop with the united states almost a seventh of the world's population have disabilities so i'm wondering you know are there any moments with your work uh, in the clinton or obama administrations or with the world bank that really sticks out to you?
2: I would look at the 20 years that I worked in the nonprofit world, which was in organizations that I was involved in helping to create and were run by disabled people. And then when I worked in the Clinton administration, the World Bank and the State Department, one of the big differences was when I worked with disabled people's organizations, I was surrounded by disabled people. And what that meant was one of our objectives was to be changing our communities, both so that disabled people could get services from other organizations that weren't serving disabled people, you know, i.e., when we saw that disabled people were calling the center and needing to be able to go to a shelter because of sexual violence the shelters were not accessible. But even if you didn't need physical accessibility, they were not accepting people who were blind or deaf or had a mobility disability or intellectual mental health disability. That was something that we really were working on changing. So what was going on in the U.S. at that time, 504 was something that people were learning about. We didn't have that much information in the United States. More of it was in the Bay Area, but people in other countries were learning about it. There were disabled people from other countries that were coming uh, to the United States at that point, supported by the State Department on their travelers programs. Embassies were identifying leaders. So I was meeting disabled people from other countries who were doing similar work. And we really bonded together because As an example, I had a very dear friend, unfortunately, he passed away, Kalakunkala, and Finland is where he was from. And Finland's laws, like ADA and 504 and others, were not really in existence at that point. But they had very strong laws, like on healthcare. And so we were learning from each other and sharing information and traveling and recognizing that we did need to be able not only to develop our organizations in states and the country here, but we really could benefit from learning about what other countries were doing. And they really loved the advocacy work that we were doing because many of these countries were not used to disabled people speaking up and out like we did. So there were some really great alignments that went on and still go on. At the end of the day, it's really being able to create a vision and a dream that is something that at our most local levels, people see as something which is beyond those of us who have an acknowledged disability today. But it is something that needs to be embraced by our communities because it is relevant to everybody that lives there whether it's their family member who has a disability or they that may acquire a temporary disability or a permanent disability, this needs to be something which is seen as integral to the work that we have to do as Jews and non-Jews to ensure our society really can move towards equity and justice by including everyone.
1: Judy, thank you so much for joining us today. You've changed the world. You've changed the world for us. We stand on your shoulders. We are so honored.
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah, just remember, it's all of us together. But you started it. I was one of the ones who started it. (laughs) Really, honestly. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We hope our conversation with Judy moved you as much as it moved us. For more information on Jewish Disability Awareness, Acceptance, and Inclusion Month, visit JewishBoston.com slash J-D-A-I-M. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you to our editor, Jesse.